So I thought I'd start tonight with a poem that gets read at most retreats and I got to it first. And it's a good poem for the end of the second day. It might bring a bit of lightness to your heart. It's called Bugs in a Bowl. It says, Hanshan, that great and crazy, wonder-filled Chinese poet of a thousand years ago said, we're just like bugs in a bowl, all day going around, never leaving their bowl. I say, that's right. Every day, climbing back up the steep sides, sliding back over and over again, around and around, up and back down. Sit in the bottom of the bowl, head in your hands, cry, moan, feel sorry for yourself, or look around, see your fellow bugs. Walk around, say, hey, how you doing? Say, nice bowl. (laughs) So here we are all of us bugs together, doing things over and over again. So here's an opening question. Do you know where your mind is? Gil asked us that question last night. I thought I'd just start with it tonight to just check in and see if you know where your mind is. So we know these days, we know a lot these days that probably the Buddha didn't know. We know that we evolve from stardust. Every iota of your body was once upon a time a star. Isn't that amazing? And things have happened, obviously. And things have changed and shifted and the solar system came along and the earth came along and, you know, billions and billions of years. It just boggles the mind. And as many of you know, I just love this stuff. And life has arisen and, at least on this planet, we know that we have conscious human beings who are capable of reflecting on their own condition and reflecting on the whole picture, actually pretty astounding when you think about it. How did this happen? And we know, partly because we can reflect, that there is an enormous amount of suffering. I think after two days of retreat, every one of you would swear to the fact that there's suffering. And probably you would agree that having a degree of consciousness doesn't make it any better. In fact, if anything, it probably makes it a little bit worse a lot of the time because we can think about it and ruminate on it and chew on it and agonize over it. Makes being a cow look good, doesn't it? (laughs) Just thinking of the cows that we drive by as we get here. They seem pretty peaceful out there. So we've come here, as we agreed the theme was, we've come here to open the heart and the mind, both to ourselves and to others, to try to figure out 
some ways to do that. And it all seems pretty difficult often. But it, we also understand that if we examine our own situation, we can perhaps begin to see some what's going on. And we know that in the world of ultimate truths, there isn't any answer for us anyway in the end of exactly what's going on. It's very mysterious and I think it's going to remain so. Um, But in the world of time and space, in this world that Gil was talking about last night where you can say, here, and you can say, this, in that world, then I think we can begin to see some things. And in that world, we can seek some degree of freedom. We can seek the ending of suffering and we can seek the ability to find some liberation in every moment of our lives, no matter what is happening. That's pretty astounding, actually, to think about that. And in interviews today, it's always a wonderful day, the first day, when we begin to talk with y'all and begin to hear a little bit about what's going on. And it came up several times in the conversations I was having, that the question, where is the freedom here in this particular situation and the heart and mind of this particular student on this particular day of this retreat? So last night we talked a lot about ahimsa, about not being in conflict with any particular moment. And I wanted to pick that theme up tonight and continue it. And I wanted to work in particular with three phrases that actually emerged towards the end of last week. It was like one of those little planes that goes by with a little banner, you know? And it was like, here's your talk for the retreat. So here are the three phrases. Three really simple phrases, which probably, even if you're not taking notes, you can hold on to. The first one is one that was mentioned last night. This is the way it is. We could stop right there, you know. This is the way it is. Perfect instruction for all meditation retreats. The second, equally succinct, is let go. Just that. And the third, a little different, is a quotation from the Buddha who said, there is no one more deserving of your loving kindness than yourself. An astounding phrase. So this question of suffering and difficulty is a huge question. So let's take a look at that first. There's a story that I've known for a long time about Suzuki Roshi, the great Zen teacher who taught in San Francisco and who died after years of being hugely important in bringing the Dharma to the West. And he died of cancer. And at one point, he was asked about what was going on for him and he replied, it was just just suffering Buddha. 
Isn't that amazing? Doesn't it hardly even makes sense? It's so amazing. Like, you know, could I say that if somebody asked me about my suffering? I don't think so. You know, when my back or my stomach or my mind or my heart is on fire, it's just suffering Buddha. That's all. So I don't think most of us can do that, at least not yet, or certainly not all of the time. So how do we begin to address suffering? So when the Buddha started teaching, actually, he taught once, he gave a sermon, and um, a bit of a teaching, and, and a man asked afterwards who he was, and he went on to say, Um, The Buddha said, you know, I'm the perfectly enlightened one and Arahant, the Buddha. And the man (laughs) kind of looked at him and went away. Like, huh? You know, who does he think he is? Isn't that amazing? You know, and like, is he hallucinating or has he got some delusion of grandeur or maybe he's ingested too many interesting substances and, you know, he's got this idea that he's somebody special. So after that, he met with some of his friends in Deer Park. And these were men that he had practiced with and he'd done all of the ascetic practices that we've heard all the stories about. And, um, and he'd left. After, he'd walked away from that kind of practice and, and because he'd begun to realize that extreme ascetic practices were not helpful, just as his extremely indulgent life had not been helpful in waking up either. And and he'd begun to move towards this more middle way, eating more food, living a more normal life. And these men were very skeptical that he had anything to say that could be of any value because he'd walked away from their practice. But they, they listened. They agreed that he would listen when he wanted to teach them a bit. And so this is what he said. This was the core of his teaching. He said, there is dukkha. Things are not satisfactory. They're difficult. They're out of round. There is suffering. He said, there are causes for that dukkha. You can find what causes this difficulty, this dissatisfaction. He said, there can be an end to it. Really the most, I think the most wonderful of all the truths, actually. And then he said, there's a path to follow, there's a way, there's a practice. There are practices that you can do that will help you with this. This teaching, this four noble truths, is the core of all Buddhist teaching. Anywhere you go in the Buddhist world, you will find it. And that particular talk is known as the turning of the wheel of the Dharma. And I always think, this is a little aside, Gil will remember this and I'm sure John, the day when we first walked into this hall to dedicate it. And the monks came in, Ajahn Amaro and others, chanting the Dhammachaka Sutta, which is the turning of the wheel of the Dharma. And that's what we began this retreat life here in this hall with is that foundational teaching. And it's a very compelling teaching because everyone here is totally aware of how difficult life is. 
and that things are rarely satisfactory. And if they are briefly satisfactory, they don't stay that way. You know, something comes along and they change. And we know that, as Gil reminded us so wonderfully last night, that we are so often in conflict with this suffering, with this difficulty. We don't deal very well with it. We don't like it. We try to avoid it. We get confused about what causes it. And we don't have the foggiest notion of how to end it. And certainly the path, the way, is not clear. Our friend Ajahn Sumedho, who is the teacher of many of the teachers at Spirit Rock, and has sat right up here, right here, so many times, and he loves to teach about the Four Noble Truths. In fact, he teaches about almost nothing else. And every now and then he will roar out, he has this big voice and he will say, these are the Four Noble Truths. You know, your whole body kind of goes like that. And then he goes on to say, and the practice of this teaching is the practice of a lifetime. If you had nothing else to do, if you had no other information about the Dharma, this would give you practice for a lifetime. And, you know, over and over again he teaches about them, and over and over again we teach about them. Some of you have heard innumerable talks about these truths. But I think of this teaching, it's like the rain, you know. And we never complain that the rain is always the same. You know, it's always wet, it's always water, it comes down from the sky, and we need it. And often, particularly when it gets dry and parched, we're so happy to have the rain again. It's raining. How many times this winter, when it was dry, did we say, oh good, it's raining, we need it so much. And these teachings are just like that. They, they nourish our parched, the parched earth of our minds and our hearts. So there are four truths, and each truth has three different aspects. So all together it's kind of a teaching of twelve different things. So the first truth says there is dukkha, there is this suffering, dissatisfaction, out of roundness. It should be understood. And then the third part is when it has been understood. The second says there is a cause of dukkha, which is the attachment to desire. And attachment should be let go of, and then when it's accomplished, it has been let go of. The third truth says there can be an ending, there is a cessation of dukkha. And that this should be realized, and that then it has been realized. And then in the fourth truth, there is a path to the ending of suffering, the path should be developed, and then it has been developed. So each time the first step sees the issue, sees the question. And the second piece is the practice of working with the issue. And then the last is the result of the practice. It's often said, many of you I'm sure have encountered this, you know, people will say, ah, oh, I don't want to be a Buddhist. It's all about suffering. You know, if you're a Buddhist, you suffer. 
And we were actually at a meeting yesterday where it was mentioned that there's some event that had happened recently in the, in the, you know, the big world of big companies in Silicon Valley. And um, some of the Buddhists there were told that suffering was a bad brand name. <laughs> it is a bad brand name. It's a terrible brand name, you know. We don't, we don't call it suffering rock, do we? I mean, that wouldn't, that wouldn't really do it, I don't think. And yet, we all suffer, don't we? We all get so caught in the contractions and the rigidities of the heart and the mind. And it's just never okay for very long. There's always something. So here's another poem. It's called Afraid So. So you have to remember the words afraid so because it's the answer to every one of the questions that make up this poem. Is it starting to rain? Afraid so. Did the check bounce? Are we out of coffee? Is this going to hurt? Could you lose your job? Did the glass break? Was the baggage misrouted? Will this go on my record? Are you missing much money? Was anyone injured? Is the traffic heavy? Do I have to remove my clothes? Will it leave a scar? Must you go? Will this be in the papers? Or maybe today, is my time up already? Are we seeing the understudy? Will it affect my eyesight? Did all the books burn? Are you still smoking? Is the bone broken? Will I have to put him to sleep? Was the car totaled? Am I responsible for these charges? Are you (laughs) contagious? Will we have to wait long? Is the runway icy? Was the gun loaded? Could this cause side effects? Do you know who betrayed you? Is the wound infected? Are we lost? And last, will it get any worse? (laughs) Bad news all around, isn't it? Really bad news. So the Buddha said that he came to teach about suffering. He came to teach about the nature of suffering so that we would understand it, about dukkha, its nature, and the ending of it. And he intended these teachings for you, for me, for you, for us, to use for our own investigation of our experience. All of the teachings you hear here are intended that way. They're not intended as anything that you should believe and swallow whole. They're intended for you to take them and put them to work and check them out and see if they're true. Try them out on your own heart and mind. So when we begin to look, we begin to see there's a lot of pain and suffering that's completely unavoidable. We all get old. We all get sick. We all die. 
There's all kinds of dying and ending everywhere in our life, all kinds of suffering. And so we need to learn how can we have those experiences because they're part of the deal. If you're born as a human being in this realm of time and space, you will get old, you will get sick, you will die. You can believe it or not, but it's true, you know. And so how do we do it? You know, how do we sit with that first phrase that I wanted to bring? This is the way it is. Whatever the this is, whatever the moment is, this is the way it is. We know that the Buddha started out being very protected from suffering, you know. He was very carefully kept away from all kinds of difficult things, but that can't be sustained. It never can be sustained. And like all young people, you know, after a while, he wanted to get out. He wanted to escape the confines of family rules, and he wanted to see for himself what was so. And so he went out. And that's when he encountered someone who was very old and someone who was sick and someone who was dead. And he also encountered a monk who in his serenity in the midst of all of this planted the idea that it might be possible to be free in the face of all this suffering. And the Buddha was really astounded. He was undone. How could this be? How could these things exist in a world that had seemed to be so safe? Excuse me just a minute. There you go, my dear. So how could, he, how could these things be in this world? It seemed safe. You know, he'd lived a very idyllic existence. How Could the monk, if they did exist, how could this monk be the way he was? How could he find his way to being a noble one who could bear all of the troubles of the human condition? So he began to see that although pain is required, as they also say in 12-step work, Suffering is optional. And that the pain is really different from the dukkha, from the suffering. So there is no escape from the inevitable pain of the body, of being in a family, of dying, all the things that happen. It all exists in the human realm. We're not going to eliminate it. Even the Buddha. You know, the Buddha had a bad back. Those of you in the bad back contingent are in good company. So, you know, maybe we could think of that when you're off lying in your little corner, wherever it is we found space to put you. The Buddha would be back there with you. He wouldn't be up here with us. He might be back there with you, you know. And he got sick sometimes and he died of food poisoning. Perfectly 
ordinary human being with an ordinary human body. And so he invited us to begin to look at our suffering. And now, at the end of two days of retreat, you're probably pretty clear that you've been looking at your suffering, at least some of it. And I might invite you to take a moment, you know, what's your particular saga of suffering that cycles around and around and around and around, kind of like a really bad soap opera, you know? And, but we all have them. Some of them are truly, truly painful. They come through over and over again. And he says in that first truth, it must be understood. So beginning to look at your suffering, it's not about, I'm going to look at it and then it will go away. That's what we always want to have happen. But really we're invited, particularly in a context like a retreat, to become a student of your suffering, to really get curious about it, you know, to begin to see what is it and, and what is the story and what, how is it that the body feels and to feel the contraction and the tightness of the mind and the heart that happens often when, when we get really caught. We have to understand it in order to find our freedom. And it's hard to have the vision that this can possibly work. But in the third of the Noble Truths, for the moment I'm skipping the second one, this is what the Buddha says. He holds up the vision. He says, there can be an end. It's possible. It's why you're here. You know, it's why I'm here. And it's possible that this ending can be realized. And realized, in this case, means made real. That you can make the ending of suffering real. Our friend Sylvia Borstein likes to say there's actually a third and a half noble truth, which is, if not all of the time, at least some of the time, there can be an ending of suffering. I like that. I think it's true, actually. I think that's how we do it, as we begin to have some little successes in ending suffering and gradually they come closer and closer together. So it's so important to begin to see that no matter what is happening to you, once you have recognized that this is the way it is, then the big question is, how can I find freedom in this moment? How can there be less suffering in this moment? Here I am at this retreat and the person next to me has the Velcro jacket and they're opening it when they're hot and then they rustle, rustle and close it again and then they open it again or something like that. I don't know whether Gil's person did that or not. But, or maybe they're breathing funny. Now there's always somebody at a retreat who breathes funny. You know, or they've got a cold and they're snuffling and snorting and coughing and choking. And, uh, you know, and then you really do worry, you know, is it contagious or not? And so you're suffering. How do you find freedom in that moment? You know, how do you find freedom in the moment when someone butts in front of you in the line just as you were going to get the last piece of pizza or whatever? 
There's, and those are the moments to begin to work with, you know, because that's, that's the stuff of our lives. That's where we can really begin to, to put this practice into, we can embody it in our lives and to, to find it. There is no moment, there is no <coughs> moment that does not have that possibility. There's no illness too awful. There's no death. You know, we've all heard amazing stories of people who have faced remarkable difficulties, including their own death, with great composure and great freedom. It is possible. I was thinking, as I was looking through notes for this talk, about a friend of mine, um, a friend of mine that I knew when I was teaching a lot in Montana, she died of cancer. And, you know, from the time that we knew the cancer was back until the time she died, I guess it was about 18 months. And, you know, in the beginning, she was, there was so much dukkha, you know, a lot of difficulty, of course, you know, and anger and just suffering and confusion and she didn't have a lot. She was a single woman and um, didn't have a lot of resources and and of course there was all the real pain that went with her different chemotherapies and whatnot. And, And then as time went on and people stepped in and paid her mortgage and bought her dog food and brought food for her and took care of her. And she said to me, I remember her saying to me once, you know, I, I didn't know that there was this much love. I didn't know that people cared. She said, I think I needed this to happen in order to begin to find this out. And that there was this sense of her as she went into her suffering that, and as she began to realize there was freedom even in this. And then I, I actually and I was looking through my poetry and came across this quote, which was an email um, about her, um, written by another friend um, at when my friend Jordan was at her last retreat. And um, she said she, when she was at the retreat, she became interested in tadpoles. You know how it is, you get interested in turkeys and lizards and ants and that. Well, she became interested in tadpoles. She was walking by the creek and saw them swimming, their lovely bodies shining, and fell in love. As the rains fell and fell and the creek burgeoned and crashed downstream more fiercely, she worried about these sweet, slow, delicate creatures. When the rain stopped and the creek began to return to normal, she, she looked again but realized that the tadpoles had been required by nature herself to let go and flow downstream. This is her process now, and her requirement is also demanded by nature itself. Hmm. So this possibility of freedom needs to be made real. That's what we're asked to do, and that's the challenge. How can I make it real in this situation that I don't like and which I want or I hurt or I suffer.
So if that seems like too big a goal, here's also a quote from the obituary for Joko Beck, who was a great Zen teacher who died mm, about a year ago now. And um, in her early 90s, Joko, in her early 90s, Joko said that she was still dealing with the same emotional, psychological, social, and self-esteem issues she had when she was 16. (laughs) Only, now she was behaving differently around them. And that's about the best you can hope for. (laughs) And there's freedom in that, isn't there? You know, when we can behave differently in the face of those issues. So, we begin to hold that to be true, to work with it, to hunt for the place of freedom. And as we begin to examine our suffering, we notice, yeah, this is pain. And that when we get attached to some desire or other, so now we're at the second of the truths, usually for things to be different from the way that they are, that's where the suffering begins. And you know, again, in the interviews today, you know, always there's a sense, you know, I've said it in my own interviews, we want a retreat that's not this retreat. This isn't the retreat we ordered up, you know. Maybe we thought this was going to be the deepest retreat ever. Or maybe our bodies were going to be just the way they were when we were young and strong, and we could sit long and stay up late and not lose our balance when we were walking and all of those things. Or maybe you thought you were going to come here and your heart was just going to open and you were going to love all your fellow students, every one of them. Or maybe you thought you were going to come here and really get enlightened. And you get here and the retreat starts and you discover that you're old and tired and cranky and sick and troubled in the midst of whatever crisis you're in. And it's not the retreat that you ordered. So it's really important, I I try to remember to say this at most retreats, to remember Vipassana, we know that Vipassana is a wisdom practice, right? We know that, we call it insight practice, insights arise. We love that part. You know, the part where you get to see this deep truth. Oh, it's really exciting. And, however, it is a purification practice. That's the part that's hard. So, our friend Jack Cornfield used to like to say, you think you've come to the retreat, but you've come to the garbage dump. <laughs> and there you are, and here we are, sitting on our pile of garbage here, you know, all of us. If we could say, imagine if we could see it. You know, that would be pretty amazing when there's this pile of stuff and, and it's, you guys aren't the only ones with stuff, you know. We've got our stuff up here, too. So, so we'd all have our stuff. We're not at some peaceful, tranquil, blissful place. We're really at this place where we are purifying. You have to purify in order to have the insight. Also important to note that it's noticed that it's attachment to desire. It's not the desire itself. Sometimes we think if we beat the mind long enough, desires won't ever arise. Maybe in a long, long while that would be true. But, you know, at this point, desires come up. And, of course, the problem is they're sticky, right? And we get attached to them. 
And that's where the dukkha really comes in. We just glom onto that desire, the place where we get caught in the yumminess of something, it's so delicious and we really want more of it, or it's really unpleasant and we hate it and we want to get out of it, and there's clinging and craving and aversion, and this is big time suffering, big time dukkha. And we want anything but the present moment. Forget this present moment stuff. So the second teaching of the evening is let go. Let go. So here's a a quote from Jack, actually. It's It's an entire chapter of a book. He says, The entire teaching of Buddhism can be summed up in this way. Nothing is worth holding on to. If you let go of everything, objects, concepts, teachers, Buddha, self, senses, memories, life, death, freedom, Let go and all suffering will cease. The world will appear in its pristine, self-existing nature and you will experience the freedom of the Buddha. The rest that follows in this book are useful approaches and techniques for learning to let go. Two words instead of a whole book. Sometimes it's said those same two words, let go, instead of all of the thousands and thousands of volumes of Buddhist teachings. But you know, that doesn't mean that all that writing could be left undone. What it means is, those two words are really, really hard. Sounds so easy, just let go. And sometimes your friends say that, you know, just let go. It's like, oh, spare me. It's so hard to let go. We don't just let go. And so most of the teachings that we are offering you here, these teachings are about the various ways to let go. Many, many different ways to let go. And so Ajahn Sumedho, again, in one of his early writings that I've quoted hundreds of times over the years, says, just be like an earthworm who knows two words, which is, as I always think, a very remarkable earthworm. (laughs) And those two words are, let go. So as you tunnel along through your own darkness, you know, those are your two words, let go, let go, let go, let go. So the instructions of this retreat and the teachings will help you in learning how to do this. Be with the breath. Be with the breath means you have to let go some of getting so caught in whatever the story is. You have to keep coming back. Every time you come back, you let go. (coughs) It's really true. Stay in the present moment. That's letting go of the past and letting go of the future. Just be here. Learn how to do the practice of loving kindness, which means we have to begin to let go of that judging, criticizing mind of ourselves and of others. Listen to the teachings. When we put ourselves in a place where we're listening to teachings, we're letting go of that sense that we know it all already. We're opening up to wisdom that isn't already there. We do not just decide to let go and that's it. Over and over and over we try things 
And a lot of this is about trying things. It's about experimenting. It's about seeing what works. Does it work for you? If the answer is yes, keep on doing it. Let go some more. If the answer is no, try something else. Each bit of letting go brings more freedom. And so then the Buddha gives us this path. He gives us the Eightfold Path, which we'll surely talk about more towards the end of the retreat. So I'm not going to go into it in too much detail now. But it's important to honor it because it's this, it's a way. I always capitalize it in my thinking. It's a way that if we follow it, will support our finding these moments of freedom. It will support our letting go. So it's a way of wise view, of deepening our understanding, of really beginning to see into impermanence and the nature of our suffering and letting go of the centrality of self, all of these things that we'll be talking more about in the course of the retreat. It's a way of wise intention, of creating a strong intention to wake up, which becomes it's like a compass setting for our practice. And, and we, every, you know, every time you check, am I going in the right direction? If you're off course, you come back. You, know, you come back over and over again. You come back to the intention of ending suffering in every moment, the intention of finding freedom. That's, that's that instruction in our sitting practice to come back is one of the most important instructions that we give you because it's true in every aspect of practice. Come back, come back, come back. The next portion of the Eightfold Path is the path that's about living our lives in a way that's non-harming with action and speech and choice of livelihood. And then the last part of the Eightfold Path is about training the mind so that we don't get caught in the attachments and stories in the first place with effort and mindfulness and concentration. So the third teaching of the evening isn't part of this Four Noble Truths, but I think it's very important as we work with it. And this is that saying of the Buddha, that there is no one more deserving of your loving kindness than yourself. I am always shocked when I read that. It's like, what? I don't, you know, it's almost like I don't really believe he meant it. You know? How could there not be others more deserving? What about those cute little lizards and the deer, those beautiful deer and all these sweet yogis who are sitting around me in the hall and the cooks. I mean, the cooks, they certainly deserve my loving kindness more than I do. And, and, and my grandchild and your cat. I mean, we just, you know, we have this long list of all these beings who just are, our hearts open, and then, you know, and then along comes you, right? And the heart kind of goes, I don't think so, and shuts down a little bit. But that's not what the Buddha says. The Buddha says there's no one more deserving than yourself. And I think what it points us toward, and particularly in our culture where this is such an issue, is how easy it is for us to be enormously judgmental and self-critical. I will bet, 
let's see, I think there are 91 of you. I will bet that there is not one person in this room, including those of us who are teaching, and probably including the staff who've come to visit this evening and whatnot, who has not, in the last two days, been self-critical. And if you are here, I would really like to meet you. Because it's just so deep in us. And it's very, very hard when we're holding ourselves in that way of judgment and criticism and unkindness to do this very, very hard work that we're being invited to do. We do not let go easily, as I said. And we do not want always even to find that place of freedom. And when we have this hugely strong opinion of ourselves that's very negative, much, much harder. Some years ago, I taught a group in Santa Cruz. We have a... I've often taught there a a committed students group. And this particular group was only going to meet for six months and it was on loving kindness. Were you there? Yeah. I have one member who's here with us this week. And um, so we were all required to do loving kindness practice as part of our work together. And I don't know why I did it, but I decided that I would do loving-kindness only for myself for those six months. And that, you know, once a day I would kind of add on my little list because I couldn't quite bear to turn my back on them completely. It felt like I was doing something really bad. How could I choose to do loving-kindness just for me for six months? And not only that, it was going to be my only practice. I let go of Vipassana and, you know, if I was leading a class I'd, you know, or a sitting, I'd get, get it started and then I would do metta even if other people were doing um, Vipassana. And I can tell you that I utterly recommend it. It was an absolutely amazing learning time in that six months of doing this metta for myself wasn't always comfortable, for sure. But what I found was that the heart began to open. And it wasn't just to me, it was to all other beings. So it, it effectively did it for everyone, even though I was directing it just to me. So as you do this practice, as you're working at this retreat, um, I would invite you to remember that each day, that you are deserving of loving-kindness. You must know this, you brought yourselves here. And that in itself is a hugely kind act. And when we hold ourselves with goodwill, with friendliness, with kindness, that enormously supports our ability to stay on the path, on this way of the Buddha, and to do the work, to let go, to let go of all, or not all, but of some even of our attachments, 
all ultimately, to be with things the way that they are. So I'd like to end with a poem, another poem from William Stafford. And I end with it because I think it's an invitation. This teaching about suffering, about dukkha, about its cause, about the attachment to desire, about the possibility of an ending, about letting go and using the path to support your letting go, about holding yourself with goodwill and friendliness. This is a teaching that can be a thread and you can follow this thread day after day after day. So William Stafford says, there's a thread you follow. It goes among things that change, but it doesn't change. People wonder about what you are pursuing. You have to explain about the thread. It is hard for others to see. While you hold it, you can't get lost. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen, people get hurt or die, and you suffer and get old. Nothing you do can stop times unfolding. You don't ever let go of the threat. So stay just as you are, and let's just breathe together for a moment. So thank you very much for listening and please enjoy your time for walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.